Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Sales Targeting How to Attract and Pursue the Right Leads for Your Business. Make sure you download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 350. Nice, fun milestone episode. This is Elizabeth Frederick, as always, and I am so glad to be back from our July hiatus. I hope everybody has been having a wonderful summer and spending a lot of time outside and with family and friends. I am really looking forward to getting back to the podcast, and today's guest is a great start. I'm speaking with the Chief Growth Officer for Saxum, a marketing agency delivering strategic campaigns and digital solutions for a changing world. He is based in beautiful Littleton, Colorado. Welcome to the show, Jeff Risley. Thank you, Elizabeth. Really glad to be here. And I'm so glad that we could have you. Um, Before we really jump into the bulk of our conversation, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself a little to our listeners, kind of tell your story, um, help them get to know you. I'd be happy to. So I've spent my entire career in the marketing communications field, about 30 years. So I've had the chance to be on the brand side, on the agency side, nonprofit. I've also been done B2C type marketing as well as B2B marketing. So I've been really fortunate. I I always say I've marketed everything from French fries to financial services. So that's... (laughs) That's been a great career for me. So I've been at Saxon for about five years, and you're correct. We are a mid-sized agency obsessed for good and really loving it and love to uh, tell you more about it today. Absolutely. So um, I think we're going we're gonna to move on to that a bit later, but I know um, a core kind of philosophy that you have and, and a key theme in your work is the idea of revenue marketing. And I'd love to hear kind of what that means to you, because I know that's a it's a it's a term that maybe not everybody is familiar with. Correct. So revenue marketing is really just an approach to marketing, a philosophy to marketing that helps an organization build scalable, predictable, provable revenue over time. So. In my experience, Elizabeth, most organizations don't have a really clear understanding of what marketing work is working and what's not. They, they may not measure it, and if they do, they may not have good measures of it. So they don't know where to double down. We, and, and that creates a whole host of problems. We actually have a name for this problem. We call it marketing madness syndrome, the <laughs> idea that mad is an acronym, right? So yeah. What, what we've seen is a lot of misalignment. So mm-hmm. generally that's with sales, marketing and sales not being aligned in process or even mindset. The A is for audience. So a lot of times uh, clients will misunderstand their target personas or they won't take the time to understand them deeply and how they buy. Mm-hmm. And the D is for data. Either there's no data at all or if, if they have data, it doesn't produce actionable insights. So revenue marketing is really a solution to this madness syndrome, we call it, because you can put into place something that's way more um, reliable, way more provable, and then ultimately, because of the data, it helps you be predictable. And that then allows you to scale. You can put your money where you need to and not waste your marketing dollars. 
That's that's so critical because like you said, you see so many organizations and they just feel like they're throwing money at marketing and they don't know what it's doing. And so it's either just kind of a standard percentage of the budget or it's we spent this much last year, we'll add 5% or keep it flat <laughs> um, and, you know, good luck, have fun. And right. that's not that's not terribly useful. You find so many organizations where they have, you know, maybe a beautiful website or they have beautiful materials and they aren't really being used in the sales process. The sales team isn't leveraging them. Customers aren't, you know, stumbling on the content. And then what's the point? (laughs) And so really making sure, you know, that, that alignment is so incredibly key. I'd love to hear um, if you have any, Um, any stories or examples of where you've really seen that misalignment or on the opposite side, if you've got a a really strong example of where where you've seen alignment that has caused um, a significant result, because I would imagine you have a lot of um, a lot of interesting case studies. Yeah, we do. And I think the interesting thing about it is we have a very holistic view of, of this approach. Revenue marketing is very holistic what most clients do will pick it apart, want to use mm-hmm. certain parts of it. So uh, the the solution itself really relies on making sure five things are working in concert. Mm-hmm. So number one, it's your your research and data strategy. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're not doing research, you're not collecting data, you know, then you're missing out. The brand strategy. So sometimes your brand is inconsistent with really who you are as a business and it's not connecting. Uh, Your audience strategy, like I said, not getting to know people deeply enough and well enough. And then the go to market strategy, the playbook, the paid, earned, and owned elements really need to be based on everything you learned up to that point. So you can Mm -hmm. have what we call customized contact strategies. Um, and then, of course, the marketing technology strategy is critical. None of this works without having your MarTech stack in place, which I can talk about. And that leads to measurement. So those five things really work. Now, some clients we work with or I've worked in, in the past absolutely do a great job of this. I would say that the B2C world, brands that mm-hmm. are in B2C, are much further ahead than B2B brands in my experience. Yeah. They're they're doing a lot in this space along revenue marketing. They may not call it that, but they absolutely spend time and effort on it. It's the B2B space, you know, without mentioning names or brands, that I think struggles a lot more because in the past it's been much more about, you know, creating collateral, being at trade shows, that kind of thing. But the world just changed massively, even for B2B buyers. So we no longer think about it the same way we used to. That's that's really fascinating because when you think about it, um, I, I certainly see that from a B2C side, there's kind of two, maybe two sides of it that are, that are quite different from how a lot of um, B2B companies are marketing. First of all, from the B2C side, a lot of times your market is everyone um, mm-hmm. or just about everyone. And so you see the big brands, you know, the Pepsis, the Coke, you know, Coke, um, a lot of like food and beverage and, um, and various other, you know, personal care items and other things where the market is everybody. And so 
they're doing things like Super Bowl commercials and mm-hmm. lots of broad, um, over, you know, just all over the place. And that's mm-hmm. something that um, at a scale and scope, most B2B companies don't even want to do that, much less can afford it. Um, and then there's the side on the B2C side that is just so powerful when it comes to research and marketing directly to you. And, you know, you search for something and then suddenly, you know, you search for shoes and then suddenly in Instagram, you're seeing a lot of shoe ads or whatever it is. And so the, the way marketing can be so incredibly specific, you know, um, a woman in her late thirties living in New York city, I'm going to see different ads than you would. And that's something that at a population level, they do that amount of research that I don't know that a lot of B2B companies have have really thought about or or know how to target people to that level because it is it is different um, when it comes to the B2B side. So that's a that's a great observation. Well, it's and it's a great point. You know, generally we have, you know, buyer committees in the B2B world. So you are speaking not to a single person, but to many who are influencing that decision. So if you just think of that as a mini little market in and of itself, mm-hmm. which technically is account-based marketing, you can apply a lot of the same principles. And you asked for an example. I'll give you a great one. One of our clients is Zinc 5. So this is a B2B client. They make nickel-zinc battery technology. So different than lithium-ion, different in a lot of different ways, better in the end because it's, uh, it's recyclable, it's yeah. safer, Um, So they came to us to help them with their revenue marketing. Everything, we started with a brand strategy, a new brand strategy for them that landed on a whole new campaign platform and positioning around the power of good chemistry. And this then led to a new website and we're working with them now on go-to-market plans. But the idea is they got it. I think they understood what we kind of preach about what's new today with marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, if I could, there's there's three things that we always tell folks that are going down this path. And mm-hmm. three things that we call truths that make it completely different today than it used to be when I started out, you know, 30 years ago. And number one is, look, marketing is as responsible for generating revenue as sales is. Mm-hmm. So- You've got to get your mind wrapped around that first. You know, today, uh, buyers are 70% of the way down the buying funnel before they even engage with a prospect or with a salesperson or with a, you know, anybody else. So if you're not present, you're missing out big time. Um, But, you know, CEOs don't really care about awareness and consideration. You know, they care about sales. So we have to show that connection between what we're doing on the marketing side and how that's helping to contribute to sales, make it easier for sales. Um, you know, the second one is, we I touched on it already, it's got to be customer-centric and data-driven. Mm-hmm. It's not about your product or solution. It's about solving the problems, causing the most pain in your buyer's lives. And if we can do that in marketing, we'll be supporting the sales during mm-hmm. that handoff. Um, and you can't do any of that without collecting first-party data. I mean, we're doing quant and qual, structured and unstructured. We use all of this to help paint the picture of the person or people that we are selling to and how to reach them. 
And the last I mentioned already, but I'm going to harp on it again, and that's, you know, marketing today requires integrated marketing technology, what we call the marketing stack, right? The MarTech stack. So a CRM is your base, a marketing automation layer, you know, a solid web and social content management systems. These working together are what give you all the data you need to ultimately mm-hmm. prove what's working. And I think the reason why a lot of marketers and B2B won't tackle this is because it's a heavy lift up front. It's a lot to do up front and money, but you can pay it off, you know, down the road so that you're not reinventing the wheel every single year. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen from a sales side, organizations resist CRM and spend so much time and energy and money trying to build their own internally, mm. as opposed to just take the the time and effort to implement an off-the-shelf platform well and customized for you. But your business, unless you're a CRM company, your business is not building and designing CRM. Your <laughs> exactly. business is doing what you do. And there are people, all they do, all they focus on every day is making CRM work. When it comes to marketing automation, you see organizations, again, they're trying to just kind of, you know, tape something together. And there's, there's just so much that you can get when it comes to, um, efficiency, when it comes to the ability to do kind of AB tests and see what works and, and, and see data when you, when you have a system that works for it. And we often find that, you know, there's, there's the cost of, of whatever system that it is. But then there's also the, the initial lift of getting things set up of, you know, do we have automated emails? Then we have to write the emails. Do we have, mm. um, you know, all of these other elements of the plan. And, uh, and that's where I see a lot of organizations really struggle or they do it and they don't do a very good job. <laughs> and then they Correct. think it's the technology that's the problem when maybe it's that you're sending bad emails really efficiently, <laughs> but they're still bad. That's right. You, you've hit it on the head. It's, it's so much more um, a good combination of what I call science and art today than it used to be. It was much mm-hmm. more art. Behave, it's still behavioral. You still have to connect with the heart as well as the head. But we have so much more science involved now, uh, so much more left brain activity that we can use the data to help support all of this. But you know, for most of us that were brought up into this world, it can be completely overwhelming. So I think we're going to see you know, more and more reliance on this. I, I don't know if you follow, Elizabeth, um, your chief MarTech and all of the information out there about the number of MarTech platforms. It's, it's you know, over 8,000 today. And mm-hmm. they've got a really cool interactive map that just shows you the choices of everything from, you know, the, the advertising content and social and commerce and data. And so it is overwhelming, but at the same time, you can start, you can find a place to start. It's not that difficult, especially if you're working with a partner who knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of times you have integrated tools and I'm not, 
you know, representing any one tool specifically, but you have Salesforce and Pardot and they work together. And so if you have one, it may be easy to integrate the other. If you've got HubSpot, you kind of have all of it in one place. Um, And there are, there are so many different platforms that you can use. Um, I think it's, so I'm completely spacing on the name, but there's another platform and it all kind of fits together. And I will Mm -hmm. remember it the second we're done. Um, Regardless, it is important to have that partner that really knows what they're talking about and can can help get you over the hump. And I love that, you know, just that balance of art and science. Mm-hmm. You don't want either one to fall down. And maybe you're super technically capable as an organization. Maybe you're an IT company of some sort. And so you think, you know, we can get the system fully up and running on our own and you can, but then again, you need the copy, you need the design, you need the, right. the other things. Uh, Something that I, I want to kind of go back on to, because we've touched on it a couple of times, but I feel like this can be a struggle for a lot of organizations, is that audience definition and mm-hmm. really knowing who the audience is. And you identified one thing uh, a few minutes ago, which is key, is that it's often a buying committee. And so it's mm-hmm. not like you have an audience and they're all CIOs. You have the CIO, but you also have the people who are going to be sitting around the table with them. How how should leaders really think about um, identifying that audience and and marketing to all of those people, not just the one? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know we advise clients to absolutely consider account based marketing, which is what we're describing here, especially for what we would call a key account or a target mm-hmm. account, those that um, may already be within your you know within your uh, realm of clients and your customers, and now you're trying to upsell, cross-sell. Um, but even if they're not, you could find you know targets out there if you're a B2B seller that are going to be more important than others, mm-hmm. companies, target accounts. And then you identify all of those key buyers on the buying committee, and you track what type of buying role they have. And a lot of marketing automation and CRM does that now. As you mentioned, we use HubSpot. You mentioned HubSpot. And, you know, it makes it really easy to target, understand who those people are, and then craft messages to each single one of them if you need to. So that account-based marketing style is really important in B2B. And, you know, we do it, our practice it ourselves. We eat our own cooking, but we also, you know, recommend it to clients. But it starts with a lot of research. And, mm-hmm. and we generally start with um, segmentation after we understand who these buyers are and the different accounts. We will segment them using you know, all kinds of data analysis and then from there develop personas. So you know, the personas are the you know, human representation of all that data and yeah. it helps you get to the behavioral side of, of how to talk to them. And we also then develop journey maps, buying journey maps. So we know at what point to deliver what type of information to them. All of that is things that a lot of brands and or companies don't want to do up front. Um, yeah. But we, we preach really hard to do it. Um, and it makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. You know, from again, I, I'm oh. I'm sitting on the sales side. And so we'll see so often that you have a table 
um, you know, of people that are involved in buying and you've got a few executives with different departments, and then you've got maybe a few slightly lower level managers whose teams are going to be directly involved in implementing whatever it is that you're selling. Mm -hmm. And so what you have happen is the, the C-level executive, maybe they saw your CEO talk somewhere or they, you know, saw an ad, whatever it is, they, they are the one who coordinated the meeting and they're really bought in at a big picture level. But then you have the people who are going to be doing the work and they're thinking, this seems complicated. This seems difficult. This seems like it's going to blow things up. I'm going to have to hire new people. I don't know what this person will will (laughs) be able to do. And they're seeing all of those. And so if the marketing to them is the same as the marketing to the C-level person, all about, you know, the vision of, of the amazing, miraculous thing that you accomplish, that's not super helpful. Instead, the message that they might want is, look at how easy this is. We're a partner. We implement this with you. And it, you know, you're not conflicting the messages, but you're just focusing on the right thing for each constituency based on the challenges and the problems that they that they might have. And it's amazing how how often, either from the sales or for the marketing side, it's just seen like one message to everybody. Right. You're 100% right. You've described it really well. You know, I, I read a book back in 1992 that changed everything for me, and it was, you know, one-to-one marketing by uh, Don Peppers and Martha Rogers. And they pretty much predicted, you know, the coming CRM world and, you know, one-to-one messaging, treating different clients differently. And it's amazing to me that today, here we are all these many years later, that we're still doing a lot of uh, treating everybody the same. And, mm-hmm. and it's because it's, it's hard. It's hard to do what you just described. Um, and often we're moving at such breakneck speed mm-hmm. that people just want something out in the marketplace. So those are some of the things we fight against, you know, some of the tendencies we fight against when we're working with, with new clients. Yeah, it's, it's something, you know, I can even just speak to this from experience. We set up, um, a lot of this infrastructure in terms of personas and um, email campaigns and landing pages and different experiences that each persona might have. And it was a huge project. But one thing that's good about that, and I don't know how much of this is is 100% of best practice, but as a, as a small to mid-sized organization, a lot of this, it's not like you need to be updating these emails like every week. You can have the initial build of your of your approach and check in, tweak it, sometimes retire something, sometimes add new things. But it's mm-hmm. not it's not super, super complicated to maintain on an ongoing basis. It's really just a matter of monitoring the data and making sure you're kind of keeping up with the changes of the business. And so it's just that initial lift is yes. <laughs> can be quite intense. That's right. It it that that initial lift then the management of it requires a lot of specialized skills. So, mm-hmm. you know, the roles in marketing have changed. They've become so much more specialized now. Yeah. Um, and if you, it's really difficult to staff a team with all that specialty. So that's why a lot of, you know, brands and, and companies turn to agencies because we're, that's what we do. We pull those technical, technical specialists in so that we have people who can write email copy and we have people who can, you know, build the workflows in the marketing automation. So we got marketing ops and all of those things make it, a, uh, you know, a hurdle for 
B2B brands that often agencies can help them solve. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of organizations and up to a pretty decent size, they might have a marketing team of, you know, five or fewer people. Um, and sometimes, sometimes much fewer than five. And so you're not going to have, um, a, a valid reason to have each person have a bunch of different skills. You know, it's, if, if you only need copywriting on a periodic timetable, you don't want a copywriter necessarily full-time Correct. on staff. So that, Correct. that definitely makes sense. Um, I, I didn't want to gloss over, skip over something you mentioned at the very beginning. And I want to kind of hone in on that, which is you mentioned as a business, you're obsessed for good. Mm-hmm. And that's a really powerful statement. And I know that, um, that that's obviously really important, but overall, that approach of having a philosophy, having a statement like that, that you can say about your organization is something that you really care about. So I'd like to hear first um, about what it means to you to be obsessed for good, but then um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how organizations can kind of identify these statements for themselves and and really live those out. So big question. I ask this no. sometimes. <laughs> oh, great question. And I love talking about it. It's um, we're not we're we're uh, not unlike most companies out there that are always struggling to keep up with the changing consumer and buyer behavior. And luckily, Saxum has always had this philosophy underlying what's going on inside the company in our twenty-year history. We just became very intentional and purposeful about stating it, mm-hmm. and. The the, releva- the revelation is, look, buyers, whether they're B2C or B2B, want relevance, authenticity, they want purpose from brands. And B2B buyers are no different in my belief. They, they operate as B2C buyers on their own time, and so their mm-hmm. expectations have changed significantly. So we're just big believers that purpose and profit can really fuel each other. You, you can call it conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism. There's a lot of different names for it, but um, the the world has changed. The world of business has changed significantly, and it's accelerated in this direction in just the last few years. So Obsessed for Good is our tagline that really says, look, we are here to make meaningful and measurable change in our clients' businesses, but also at the in the world at large. Hmm. And if we're not making those kinds of impacts through the work with clients and through our own programs, then what's the point? I mean, it's not just about taking care of our shareholders these days. You have to think about all the stakeholders that are impacted, even a tiny little company like ours. We're, you know, 50 plus people. We are spread out all over the U.S., but we are members of the U.N. Global Compact. We have committed to um, to make some meaningful and measurable change in several of the sustainable development goals at the UN Global Compact. We are very and heavily focused on DEI, heavily focused on our leadership development, and giving back to the nonprofit world that we most um, most uh, align with. So, if a company like ours can do it, and then a company like um, Unilever can do it. I'm quite confident others can as well. Unilever was on a, a on a 10-year path under their CEO, Paul Pullman, who retired just a couple of years ago that really invented, you know, the largest consumer brand on the planet, 
into a sustainable and, um, you know, very what he calls net positive organization. Mm -hmm. And and that purpose creates a lot of relevance with buyers and not only just the tangible positive impacts it makes on the planet. So we say, look, we can help you find your purpose and live your purpose. And then we can also help you profit as a business so that you can continue to fuel the purpose that you are trying to create in the world. So that's really our philosophy. Yeah. And it's, it's so important for a few reasons. Uh, One thing that I think a lot of people don't always connect is when it comes to the I can't even really think of the, I guess the halo effect that this provides, um, mm-hmm. although that, that almost sounds like it's, like it's fake, it's, it's real, but it attracts employees, Correct. it attracts prospects, it t- makes your clients happy and proud to be working with you. And it, it, it's just so incredibly important. You know, there's a lot of discussion about how people are more and more concerned with having a job that they feel matters and Mm -hmm. wanting to contribute to the world. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to go and work for an NGO or, you know, volunteer. Uh, They they still have to pay their rent. They still have to, you know, put food on the table. And so when you can have that really firm kind of connection to a bigger purpose, whether it's very specifically because of the work that's done in your organization. You know, if you work for a company that makes a medical device and it saves people's lives, that's that's pretty easy to find purpose in. But right. if you're if you're, you know, doing what it is that you do, which is providing providing marketing services, if you're doing what we do, which is providing sales consulting and training services, whether you're you know, you could be selling gears or batteries um, or or anything else to to really understand the, the kind of two levels of purpose. There's the there's the result of the product or service that you mm-hmm. provide, but then there's also the, okay, of that money that we make doing that, here's how we can impact the world around us. Here's how we can impact our employee base and their families and the community that we're in and the world overall. And there's, there's just so much that leaders have the ability to, to do and a lot of times you see organizations where they're, they're maybe making impact and it's kind of scattershot. It's in all different areas. It's just based on maybe a few different passion projects that, that key leaders have, and they haven't necessarily articulated how it all fits together. Yes. Well said. Well said. I, I love that because that's exactly what we experience. I think a lot of businesses, you know, there's still some that are very, you know, Milton Friedman-esque who are thinking about quarterly returns only. And I, I do think that it, it's changing, however. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, but I think there are also companies doing a lot of good and don't know that they're doing it, or if they are, don't know how to express it, to tell their story, or even more importantly, to make it a part of their brand and their overall mm-hmm. purpose. And you know that is a, an important thing that will absolutely separate you. Look, Gen Z is going to demand it. They already are. My Gen X, you know, uh, uh, generation is less concerned about it. Millennials were the start of this, so I do feel like if if companies can start thinking about this in small ways, 
and, and then build on it over time, they're going to align with the values of their buyers and they're going to feel better about it. And I'll tell you what, you said it so well about how employees, there is just no way you, re- uh, you know, attract and retain employees unless you're considering this. Um, you know, we, it's, it's the number one thing that um, our new employees tell us is we, we love the fact that you stand for something more than just being an ad agency, right? Mm-hmm. And it brings in a lot of great people. It keeps the people we have. So in fact, <clears throat> pardon me, we are uh, releasing a book uh, next month that we wrote called Obsessed for Good, The Marketer's Guide to Changing the World. So we're really excited about that. Just to put our own philosophy down on paper um, and put out there the tenants we think are important and maybe it'll help some brands out there think about their work a little differently. Absolutely. And I think um, one thing that you you touched on, and I want to maybe spend a a couple minutes more on this because it's important, is you can be doing this. You can have this purpose, this vision, be making an impact, but you need to know how to tell that story and you need to be able Mm -hmm. to tell it internally and externally. And uh, again, those should not conflict, but they might have a slightly different focus. And so um, I would imagine that that's something that, that you often have to kind of help clients figure out how to, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of marketing, but it's, it's marketing. That's right. And, and, you know, in fact, we're, um, we're working with a client right now who that's all we're doing for them is mm-hmm. how to how to continue to tell the story to their internal audiences, to their, you know, thousands of field and um, uh, headquarters employees, office employees about the change that they have in their purpose and the things they are doing to you know, move down this new path. They're their be- your, your best ambassadors. You have to make sure your employees are on board. And if they're not telling your story, you know, then good luck. Yeah. And it's something, you know, um, I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before because I'm super proud of her, but my, my former roommate just graduated with her PhD and she was looking for work. She studied um, like electrical impulses in the brain, way, way, way more complicated than I can understand. But, (laughs) um, she was looking for a job and a lot of the, the companies that require like people like her are big tech companies. And there were a few that were interested in potentially hiring her that she absolutely did not want to work for. And it was because mm. of the the feeling she had about what they're doing in the world and to the world. And as that continues to happen, as people leave organizations, as people don't get attracted, you're less able to do what it is that you do. You're less able to, to, you know, make an impact in the organ in the world. And uh, I think it's, if, we're, if leaders aren't paying attention to it now, they're going to learn the hard way that they definitely should be. Yeah, very true. I, I love hearing stories like that because it tells me, you know, it's anecdotal, but it tells me that things are changing and, you know, people are paying attention to this, employers and employees. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm hoping that the work we do will definitely impact a company around those thoughts too, in terms of who they're trying to attract into their workforce. Yeah. And, and it is something, you know, as we've touched on a couple of times, I know your clients and prospects care if there are certain companies that I wouldn't buy from, and Mm -hmm. it's not probably making much of an impact to their bottom line, but 
I at least feel that I'm living out my values and it's, you know, every small thing that, that you do, I feel like can contribute. And at a, at a big level, you know, if, if you have something about your organization that seems a little off or, you know, to contrast this, if you just have a competitor who is telling a better story about Mm -hmm. what they do for the world, they're more attractive to a lot of your buyers because of that. And we've seen for a long time at a very base level, you know, organizations would, you know, uh, women owned or minority owned and and various Mm -hmm. other things just to, just to show the, the level of impact that they might have, but it's, it's a lot more detailed than that. And there's a lot of opportunity for a positive impact as well as an opportunity for a a negative impact. Mm -hmm. It's it's never going to be really neutral at this point. Well, this is, this is definitely related, maybe tangential, but the idea that today there are standards and, you know, frameworks getting developed to help a business understand its impact and tell its story. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about ESG here, the idea of, um, you know, establishing a, uh, a framework within your company by which you will measure some of your, uh, some of your impacts. And, you know, ESG is already getting batted around um, by both sides politically as either, you know, the be all end all save the world or just more, you know, um, bad policy. At the same time, it's real. The market has decided that there needs to be something like this. And we're big believers in it. We help clients tell their ESG story, which generally is a larger purpose story, right? Mm -hmm. It just so happens that they can organize their data and thus their story around their environmental and their social and their governance related activities. So there's there's definitely a place for that. Shareholders are looking at it. Investors are looking at it for public companies. Small companies that want to go public are starting to adopt those types of um, ESG policies or do things to help them tell that story. But we take a very pragmatic approach to it. We, we kind of try, we tell clients, look, run to the middle. Because the, the edges are where all of the nasty debate about this kind of thing is. The mm-hmm. majority of businesses are trying to do right. They're trying to do well. And we just have to help them uncover it and tell it in a way, um, you know, so that you can get credit for that. And you can be completely vulnerable and say, yeah, we're still working on it, too. Um, so run to the middle. Be pragmatic about it. Um, and, you know, don't buy the hype from either side. Absolutely. You know, I Google back in the day, don't be evil. I think that's, that's a yeah. lot of it. It's, it's right. Don't be evil. You don't have to be again, like fully saving the world every day, but, um, demonstrating the good that you do. It's not just about being good, but, but you have to kind of tell that story. You know, um, one thing that, that just popped into my head as we were talking, um, I've seen a lot more ads from Apple about privacy and security mm-hmm. lately than about technology. And yep. I mean, it is technology, but it's, it's, it's a value. And they're not saying, you know, shiniest, sparkliest, fastest. They're saying your data is secure. And there's an obvious immediate <laughs> contrast to other, other right. providers and other platforms, maybe where your data is less secure. But that's, that's about you know, data governance is a really important element when it comes to privacy, when it comes to security. That's something um, 
you know, people again are, are more and more concerned about. You hear from the, the Gen Z uh, employees and, and people, you know, a lot of times people have maybe a lower um, presence on social media and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to put their data out there. Um, like all of us millennials have done. And so mm-hmm. it's it's something that people care more about um, really by the day, you know, when, it, when you look at all of the hacks and all of the other things. And so even just demonstrating that you take your customers' privacy and security seriously is, uh, it's just another element. And to a certain extent, it's kind of expected. Mm-hmm. But if you have any kind of extra story you can tell on that, that can be a really powerful um, distinguishing factor that, that, you know, depending on your space, your competitors may or may not be talking about. Well, I think it's a great example because they, with just that one thing, illustrate two of the, what we call obsessed for good tenants, two of the five obsessed for good tenants that we, you know, uh, consult on. And one of them is stand for something. I mean, clearly Mm -hmm. Apple stands for privacy. And the other is unite, don't divide. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we live in such a world today that a lot of brands, marketers will take advantage of the divisions as opposed to, hey, you know, we all uh, deserve our, some level of privacy. And more importantly, it should be in our hands, maybe not our marketers' hands or our business hands. So that's a uniting factor. It's hard to be against that unless you're, you know, a platform that doesn't live by that. <laughs> um, so it's a it's a great example, I think. I, I love Airbnb. Airbnb's foundation has done so much uh, for refugees through their, you know, through their platform. They can help so much. They did it in Syria. They've done it again in Ukraine. I mean, they're a great example of somebody, a brand that is living an obsessed for good, uh, a life. Yeah. And, it, you know, like you said, it's, it's, that's an example of where they're using actually what it is that they do. Um, and then sometimes you have organizations who are able to take their profits and use that for, for good in other ways, but either way, it, it all is part of a purpose. Um, you mentioned those were two of five, um, mm-hmm. kind of, would you mind sharing the other three? Sure, sure. Um, the first one is uh, think stakeholders, not just shareholders. Mm-hmm. That's the whole, you know, get bigger with your um, with your impact here in terms of who you're trying to impact. Uh, stand for something is number mm-hmm. two. That that scares a lot of CEOs mm-hmm. taking a stand, but there are ways to do it that are in line with your values. The third is focus on impact over analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, marketers, business people, we absolutely have to measure a lot of traditional things, but try to think beyond just that into what kind of impact I'm actually making in my stakeholders' lives. Um, The fourth one we call liberate your leaders. It's very important, we believe, to create the next generation of leaders Mm -hmm. that um, embrace this type of thinking. And we do that very intentionally in our company. Um, And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, and the last one is unite, don't divide. It's don't buy into the fact that, as I said before, the edges um, may make the most noise, but they're not necessarily representative, but we believe, of the mass in the middle. So, you know, think about ways your brand, your stance is potentially uniting people around a common good as opposed to dividing 
just to get better uh, sales and or segments, mm -hmm. right? That's the easy way out. Um, if you're really obsessed for good, you're not going to use the polarization uh, to benefit. That's, that's not the way we believe a brand should go to market. Absolutely. And I'm sure there are tons of best practices and examples in the book. And so um, yeah. I'll have to check that out. All right. Um, a question I, I like to ask people like you who are really paying attention to, to what's going on. What are the trends that you're seeing as you as you kind of look to the future of marketing? Um, it could be related to kind of what we've been talking about so far today or something completely different. Yeah, I, I guess I'd put it between macro and micro, the macro trends we've just been talking about, the idea of purpose, the idea of specialization in the marketing world, the idea of technology continuing to play a bigger and bigger role in marketing um, and in sales. Those are macro trends that I don't think are going away whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, micro trends to me are it's hard to call them trends. I, um, you know, when I started in this world, uh, or let's go to when the internet really started becoming commercialized, you know, there were all kinds of trends around what a marketer could do, but those are kind of dead now. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody's buying display at digital display advertising on AOL. Uh, but there was a lot of that going on at one time. Um, I remember being early in the social media space and working with brands. I helped a couple of really big brands launch their first social media presence. And it was a scary, scary world. Mm -hmm. um, and we kept saying, this is such a great way to connect with your, your you know, brand advocates. And it really was. But I look at what that trend has done today, and I'm a little kind of sickened by what's happened with social media and what it's turned into and how it's been abused. So the micro trends, I think, are generally just trying new ways to do things. Pay attention more to the bigger picture, is my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's It can be very easy to just constantly be, be pulled in a lot of different directions. And if you have a, a core focus, if you're kind of on top of some of the bigger um, like it's almost like, you know, tectonic plates that are shifting mm -hmm. as yeah. opposed to just the little like bumps. You don't want to, you don't want to go too quickly to, you know, in, in one direction or another, get super, super invested in one platform. And then they, you know, it, it, for example, MySpace, <laughs> you know, if, yes. if you were really, really focusing on that and it's like, oops. Um, and, and the same could be said, you know, Twitter. Facebook, yeah. TikTok. I mean, just because they're they're really popular now doesn't mean that they're going to be like that um, indefinitely. And so, really thinking through the the kind of why are you doing it? Um, are you are you doing it well? And then you can implement with the platform of tomorrow, which I will not come up with a fake name because I should not be allowed to name things. <laughs> but I, I, you said it well. That's a great summary. All right. Um, uh, another question that I like to end the podcast with is, do you have any resources that you would recommend for our listeners? Again, it could be very related to what we're talking about or completely different. You know, I do. Um, I, I try to keep up on a lot. And I would say that two books I'm into right now and really love. One is Net Positive by Paul Pullman, who I mentioned is the former CEO of mm -hmm. uh, Unilever. Uh, the other one, I got both of them right here in the desk, is um, it's called 
Deep Purpose by uh, Ranjay Julati. I'm butchering his last name. I'm sure he's a Harvard professor, but it's all about, you know, purpose and business. And I love that. Um, There's a organization out there called Collective 54, and it works with a lot of what I call boutique or what they call boutique agencies or boutique companies. Mm-hmm. We're very boutique in their, um, uh, in their definition. So they're a great resource, Collective 54. Um, a consultant that works with us, we haven't ever had the pleasure of working with you, Elizabeth, so <laughs> please don't take offense, but we have a, a consultant worth, has worked with us. His name's David Bonney. Um, he's very been very effective in helping us think differently about um, how we sell as an organization. Um, our leadership training that I told you about, Giant Worldwide, mm-hmm. can't can't talk about them enough. They're amazing organization and what they've done to create what we call liberating leaders. Um, and then you know if I could put in our own little plug, we we have quite a few resources about our different um, philosophies out there. One of them is revenue marketing. We have a great ebook on it that folks can get at uh, bold.saxum.com forward slash revenue marketing. So, you know, I don't, I, I really think you have to be um, a consumer of content if you work in our space. So um, hopefully those will help some people uh, think about what they're uh, consuming as well. Absolutely. I was taking notes and I have all kinds of things to check out. So thank you for that. You bet. Um, and uh, by the way, for listeners, especially if you're driving or walking or something and can't take notes, as always, those will be in the show notes. <laughs> so um, Jeff, if you want listeners to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Well, they can go to saxum.com. Very simple, S-A-X-U-M. Um, and if they want to meet me, talk, start a conversation, LinkedIn is the best place to get me. It's Jeff Risley. Uh, rhymes with Grizzly, but R-I-S-L-E-Y. <laughs> nice. I think that might be where we found you as well. So Good. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Jeff. I've really appreciated our conversation, and I know our listeners will as well. Well, thank you. It's a lot of fun, Elizabeth. You're doing a great job with this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 350. If you enjoyed the show, please recommend us to a friend. That's the best way to help more people discover it. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure to do that. That way you get every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever it is that you're listening. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in your podcast player of choice or email us if you've got questions, if you've got feedback, if you've got suggested topics or guests, podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ryland Sylvester. Happy selling!